Ahoy, lore lovers. Welcome to the Man of Lore podcast. Yes, I did just say lore lovers. If you've decided that you still want to listen to this podcast, then welcome to episode one. And today, I'm going to be talking about the uh, very beginning lore of Warcraft. When I say beginning, I mean timeline-wise beginning. So, the beginning of the universe, the beginning of the uh, great dark beyond, light, void, etc., etc., so why don't I just jump right into it? And most of my information on this sort will be coming from the Chronicle book. Uh, these books are very great. Highly recommend them. Um, lots of great visuals, two other great things. But one of the more interesting visuals is right in the beginning of the first Chronicle book. Um, basically, it's a sort of diagram of magic in the Warcraft universe, which obviously is kind of the most important thing. When I say magic, I mean light, shadow, life, death, order, disorder, and of course the elements. And you can find this diagram online uh, too. All you have to do is literally search WoW magic diagram, and it's like the first image that pops up, you know, on like Gamepedia and stuff like that. And that gives you a good idea of where the magic stands um, from one another. Obviously, the most important two would be the light on one side and shadow on the other. Uh, two pretty much the most important opposing forces in the whole Warcraft universe, light and shadow. Uh, shadow, also sometimes called void, same thing, really. Um, the book actually says void and shadow are interchangeable for each other. So, uh, when I say void or when I say shadow, assume the same thing, according to the Chronicle. And this diagram is the first thing you see besides the preface when you start reading this book. But if for some reason you can't get a hold of the actual diagram, um, I'll try to try to explain what it looks like real quick. So picture it in terms of like a clock, I guess. Right at noon at 12, you'd have the light. Uh, disorder would be about 1 o'clock. About 4 o'clock, you'd have death. About 6 o'clock, you'd have Shadow, or the Void. About 7 to 8 o'clock, you'd have Order. And then you'd have Life at around 9 to 10 o'clock. And that's kind of in terms of how close they are. And while this is a visual uh, illustration, it doesn't exist to be purely visual. Um, and what I mean by that is there's a reason the light's opposite from the shadow. There's a reason life is opposite from death. And obviously there's a reason disorder is the opposite of order. But a couple interesting things when you look at this is that the fell, which exists just under disorder in this, around 1 o'clock, is closer to the light than it is to the shadow. Um, which kind of makes sense in a way, because fell, of course, very chaotic energy, very disorder, what it's under. Um, but it isn't quite shadow energy, which is interesting. Um... I won't go through the whole thing just because there is so much of it on here, but I will mention, like, reality, of course, dead center, and by reality they mean, like, you know, Azeroth, you know, the physical planets, and then right to the right of reality, closer towards death and disorder, you have the Shadowlands, and then right to the left of reality, to the left of it, you have the Emerald Dream, of course, closer to life, nature of the wild gods, etc. So, you get a chance to take a look at it, it's pretty unique, um, gives you a good idea of how Magic plays a role in the Warcraft universe and uh, where certain things are located. And, of course, the most important forces of all of them are arguably light and shadow. I mean, I'll get to it in a couple minutes here, but that's what literally created um, the entire, well, everything. <laughs> all the realms, really. And light and shadow are actually the two, you can call them cosmic forces, it says in the book, that were... There before everything else, uh, before the creation of anything in the Warcraft universe, it says there's light and shadow. And if you're a Warcraft player of any sort, you know the two primary light users are priests and paladins, um, both of which heal and attack, mainly, using the power of holy magic, which falls under the light. And shadow, of course, the main thing you, uh, main thing I think of anyway is my shadow priest, but also... Warlocks. Those are the two biggest users of shadow magic, and I won't quite say death knights because they're definitely more under the death part of this than shadow. Um, there might be a little overlap, of course, but really the primary users of void or shadow magic would be, of course, warlocks and those priests that decide to use shadow instead of light. 
and we've definitely learned a lot about light and shadow especially in these last two expansions i mean that's kind of the final frontier of warcraft anyway um you know in the ultimate end the void lords which i'll talk about in just a minute here are kind of the ultimate enemy of everything so i would exp i mean i actually i don't know how they'll ever approach that but they will have to eventually someday if they seek to ever wrap up the story um whether they'll actually wrap up a MMO story or not, it's a whole different thing, but but anyway, one of the most interesting things in the Chronicle is that when it talks about light and shadow, it says that although they're contradictory by their very nature, they are bound together on a cosmic scale. One cannot exist without the other. And so it's very interesting to think when they say one cannot exist without the other, what it would implicate if one was to disappear, a.k.a. if our brave heroes of Azeroth um, sought to destroy the Void Lords once and for all, you know, the, the one thing that threatens them more than anything, what it would mean if it was just the light. And that's interesting because we saw, of course, when you do the Maghar Orc um, allied race quest, you see what happens when light is the dominant, dominant force. And in that scenario, it was a Draenei named Urel who more or less lost her mind and became a fanatic that would spread the light's influence forcibly um i won't get into detail now just because you know we're still at the beginning that's so far ahead but in that situation the light that always you know seems so pristine and great and wonderful really kind of becomes dark um and the maghar orcs suffer greatly because of it so it seems that there is a balance between light and shadow and if one of them becomes too powerful bad things definitely seem to happen so what we'll see from that in the future in the game will be interesting. But anyway, the other important cosmic forces are life and death, which I don't need to explain much because they're pretty self-explanatory. Life is, of course, everything that's life, um, especially nature magic. You know, think of the wild gods. And then death, think of necromancy. Obviously, it's a counterbalance to life. But I don't need to go into much greater detail about that. Um, other two big forces, order and disorder, and that's in terms of magic. So when you think order, think arcane magic, the, you know what, the mages are always slinging around. Um, and then disorder, think fell magic, you know, warlocks, demon hunters to some extent. Um, and then of course the other important cosmic forces are the elements, which the first elemental I always think of is good old Ragnaros. Um, and the elements are not something that are native only to Azeroth. Um, in the Warcraft universe, every more or less every planet, I guess you could say, has their own elements. Uh, we see that in Draenor, we see that in the Outland, a.k.a. the old destroyed Draenor, and you see it, of course, mainly on Azeroth. They're more or less like the building blocks, the essential everything, you know, when it comes to worlds in this universe, physical worlds. And, of course, it's most notably the shamans that use it. Um, I always think of, especially the Warcraft 3 shaman, always talking about the elements. But it's not just them. Um, most notably used by the monks are is chi energy uh sometimes called the fifth elements with the other four of course being earth air fire and water so and those are all the cosmic forces of this warcraft universe that build and make up everything so yeah with those being said why don't i just jump right into the beginning of everything so like i said before light and shadow they were there before everything else um before the universe everything was created other realms there was light and there was shadow. And as the light spread outward, basically, it eventually would leave these, um, as, it, as the light spread, it would leave these pockets of nothing. And that's where the void would kind of coalesce and create. Um, and as the light constantly expanded outward, think of like our own universe expanding almost in a way, except in this case, it's the light. And as the light expanded, it left more of these gaps and more void was created. And eventually what happened um, the void built up big enough, and these two opposing energies more or less erupted and pretty much tore a hole right through the fabric of everything. I guess you could say space-time almost in this case, um, and every other realm that exists. And in that moment, when it all erupted, uh, the physical universe was born, which sometimes is referred to the Great Dark Beyond, I'm sure you've seen somewhere. And that wasn't the only place that was created. Um, the most chaotic energy... Uh, released by this event, created what was called the Twisting Nether. Of course, the Twisting Nether, why we think of demons almost immediately, that's where they go, and they cannot die unless they are killed in the Twisting Nether. And this is a realm 
that kind of supersedes um, the other realms. And what I mean by that is there's only one twisting nether, so it's not like how we... <laughs> well, time travel made everything a little difficult, but... It's not like how we have Draenor from the Warlords of Draenor expansion pack, and then we have the Outland, the old Draenor. Um, the Twisting Nether, there is only one. It's connected to every other, I don't know if you want to say realm or, you know, dimension, but there's only one Twisting Nether that is in the middle of all these realms. So there isn't another Twisting Nether because there's another Draenor sort of situation. There's only the one terrible place. And this place is located physically outside the Great Dark Beyond, a.k.a. the physical Warcraft universe. Um, but despite being located outside, sometimes its energies seep into the universe and warp some stuff. And as this terrible cataclysmic event of light and shadow eruption continued, um, it was shards of life that kind of shattered off and flew in all directions that ended up creating the life of the Warcraft universe. And when the fractured light kind of gathered into large... Uh, clouds, I guess you could say, it would create um, beings like the Naru, of course, big important things, kind of the, when you think of light being, you think of the Naru first, um, and after they were created, they used a mastery of their uh, ability to use holy magic to mature life and do what they could for the universe. They've always been interesting. We still don't know a whole lot about them in relation to everything else we know. But also, this was the time that the Titans were created. So, Sargeras, Amonthul, all the other big boys running around. Um, this is when the Titans were created. And if you somehow haven't played Battle for Azeroth, um, you might not know that Titans themselves are created from world souls, a.k.a. in this case, like Azeroth is a world soul that's supposed to be a slumbering Titan. This is how the other ones were created, but these were the first ones. So as they awoke, they started to search the Great Dark Beyond for others like them. And at the time, um, in their natural form, the Titans were, you know, huge. I mean, we're talking like planets. They're born from planets. They're enormous. Which, obviously, Sargeras' sword still sticking out of Silithus, so you can kind of imagine the magnitude of these beings. But the first of all the Titans to awake is Amonthul. Um... And he was the first one that went out and started the search for, I guess you could say, his siblings. Um, and after he found the other titans that were uh, created at this time, they formed the Pantheon, which we're very familiar with now from the last couple expansions. Um, they're definitely, as of now, anyway, good beings who have always had, you know, the best intentions for the universe. Well, most of them anyway. We'll get to Sargeras in a few minutes here. But, yeah, when they came to uh they started to like pacify elemental populations reshape worlds they were see the naru didn't do much in terms of messing with life in comparison to the titans the titans would actually go out and do a lot of work um they would try to mature you know basically that what they want to do is they want to um, make sure the world soul inside these planets would come to maturity but most of the time, the worlds the Titans visited were inert. Uh, there, there wasn't going to be a Titan. Um, so there's really not many Titans in comparison to how many worlds there are, supposedly. But even if a world didn't have a world soul in it, the uh, Titans would still vow to protect it and take care of it. But obviously, there were not enough Titans as there were planets. So what they did was they created machines and stuck them in the planet that monitor the worlds and purged them... Uh, should the life go down a path of disorder and a path that Titans didn't want, which we're obviously very familiar with now, <laughs> playing World of Warcraft as we have. And of course, they pretty much put the Constellar race um, in charge of these facilities. So in Azeroth's case, you'll have Algalon the Observer from, you know, the Wrath of the Lich King raid, especially is when we first saw him in Ulduar. And that's when we first learned that... Um, Constellar could, or Constellar, I don't really know how quite you pronounce it, but either way, I say Constellar, um, that they could initiate a kind of a fail-safe protocol that would wipe all the life from a world in hopes of resetting its evolutionary process. Um, so that's what the Titans were doing at this time, and they would discover fewer and fewer world souls as time went on, but they still kept searching. After all, the universe was huge, um, so they kept looking around for it, but during this whole time, 
the Void Lords were starting to do their thing. And by their thing, I mean birthing old gods and sending them down to planets with world souls in efforts to corrupt them. The, you know, arguably the most important part of the Battle for Azeroth expansion, of course, um, is Nazoth trying and ultimately failing, spoilers, to uh, corrupt Azeroth. But the Void Lords didn't know which worlds had world souls in them. There's no way for them to tell, so... They would create old gods and send them to worlds regardless, in hopes... I mean, their primary goal, the Void Lords, is to create a titan, or in this case, corrupt a titan. So, um, like Nazoth's goal was to corrupt Azeroth, and have Azeroth be born... I don't even know what you call it, a Void Titan, maybe? Um, that's the Void Lords' goal. Now, for whatever... We don't have a lot on why the Void Lords want to do this, other than they, they want the universe to suffer... Um, so, in their way of going through, because the Void Lords can't actually themselves go into our universe. Um, they're kind of stuck where they are, so the only way they can interact with it is by sending their forces, um, and mostly the big case, the old gods, into the Great Dark Beyond. Um, because the ultimate goal for them, of course, like I said, is to create like a Void Titan, which we don't know what that would mean, except it would probably mean the possibly the end of uh, everything so that's their plan um, but of course at this time the titans had no idea that even existed and of course at this time too the pantheon of titans that existed was Amunthul, the, the first titan um, to come to uh, Sargeras who was kind of the defender of the pantheon big strong guy we've seen him in action uh, Agrimar that was Sargeras's lieutenant right hand man Ionar, Kazgaroth, Norganon, and Golganeth. And also, at this same time, were the rise of the demons. And they were, of course, all, uh, you know, spawned to life in the Twisting Nether. Uh, there's all kinds of demons. You've got uh, kind of the more simple, almost mindless ones, like Infernals. And you've got, you know, like Doom Guards, Fell Guards, um, Abyssals. And then you've got kind of like the greater demons, um, most notably the Nathrezim. And the Nathrezim are actually one of the demons that have a home world in the Twisting Nether of sorts. We've never uh, seen it that I'm aware of, but uh, their home world, of course, is called Nathreza, Nathreza maybe. And that is a place located in the Twisting Nether um, where they all are from. I guess you could kind of say it's like a planet. Um, we only have some descriptions, we know, like I said, we've never actually seen it, but you've got demons of all sorts coming to it this time, and some are mastering fell magic much better than others, and some are making their way through into the physical universe and causing a little chaos, but for the most part, they are pretty unorganized. Um, the only ones that are actually out there doing some things a little bit are the Nathrezim, because they always like to, um, as we've seen, infiltrate, whether it's an organization or a civilization, entire world, um, in turn nation on nation, they're good at that kind of thing. But, yeah, it's around this time, too, that the Pantheon learned about the demonic um, assaults into their universe. And the Pantheon would try to figure out what to do with them, and they would send, of course, their mightiest warrior, Sargeras, um, and it's with Sargeras that he would go out and cleanse the universe of all demonic influence. And another thing to note, too, uh, when the Nathrezim were uh, taking down these civilizations, um, these societies would crumble, and the Nathrezim would actually corrupt their populations um, and turn them into new breeds of demons. So whichever people's world would fall to the Nathrezim schemes, they would actually turn into a new kind of demon. And it was that kind of horrible thing that really attracted the attention of the Titans. Um, not just attacks, but actually turning populations into demons. And so Sargeras went out to destroy the demons. And of course, he went to, you know, world to world, civilization to civilization, fighting them. He saw terrible things, you know, civilizations collapsed. Terrible, hateful aberrations created by the demons and from these worlds. But he also found that demons were pretty disorganized and incompetent. Um, you know, they didn't have really any leadership. They were more of a ravenous horde of 
evil that went out um, to do nothing more than consume worlds. But he did become aware at this time that some of the demons were using void energy, something he had not seen before. Um, and when he found this out, he discovered um, that the you know void energy came from somewhere. There was a greater intelligence there. It wasn't just another kind of magic that could be utilized. And of course, um, that is all from the void lords, which are you know way more powerful than demons. Demons couldn't touch a void lord. Um, so when he found this out. He, you know, tried to figure out what to do, but he became more and more unsettled. The more he waged war on the demons, the more terrible things he saw. But he also had a great satisfaction when looking on, uh, budding planets with new life. You know, and his love for life itself made him especially, you know, ready to confront the Void Lords once he realized that they existed. Um, because after all, the Void Lords want to, for some reason, end all life. So Sargeras, of course, you know couldn't be a greater enemy of the Void Lords. But as he fought the demons, he began to realize that he was fighting the same demons, you know, over and over. You know, he probably recognized a few of them here and there in the battlefield, and then he started to realize, you know, something's wrong, you know, despite, um, you know, killing them, probably, you know, with, you know, his power annihilating them, that they would come back. Of course, if a demon dies in any place but the Twisting Nether, they can return. The only way to kill a demon for good is to actually kill them in the Twisting Nether. Otherwise, um, their soul will just, you know, inhabit some other, you know, demonic uh, entity or body, you know, back in our universe uh, after they die. But eventually, Sargeras realized it. But at this time, he did not know this fact. He only saw that his current, you know, methods were not working. And that he may push back the demons and get rid of them temporarily, but they kept coming back. Um, and concerned about this, the Pantheon finally sent out someone else to help him. They sent out Agrimar, of course, Sargeras' right-hand man now. Um, so he was Agrimar was Sargeras' lieutenant, and they fought shoulder to shoulder, fighting you know demon after demon after demon. And with Agrimar holding his own in battle, you know, quite he's not quite as strong as Sargeras, but pretty close. Uh, because Agrimar could do this, Sargeras had time to actually study the properties of the Twisting Nether and find a way to came, uh, contain demons, destroy them, you know, realize what's actually happening. And at this point, Sargeras created a large prison within the Nether. And this uh, prison, of course, um, I don't know if it's pronounced Mardum or Mardoom, but this is a plane where he could throw demons in and they'd be stuck there. They could not escape. And now, um, you know, when their souls went there, they would not be reborn after they were defeated. Of course, Sargeras didn't quite know the full scale of the Twisting Nether, but he learned enough to create Mardoom, messing around with the energies and everything. And it is worth noting that we've seen Mardoom pretty recently in the last expansion. That's the, where the demon hunters, you know, first conquer right in the beginning. After you make one, um, and that's where they, you know, got the fell hammer to their ship that you go to for your sanctuary. So that's something I didn't, you know, know until I uh, read Chronicle a little while back the first time. Pretty interesting. But so the demons being sent here, they would be stuck there for all eternity. They had no way to escape. But even though his demon problem had been solved, uh, Sargeras, you know, knew the void was still out there. He knew there was a greater threat. And eventually, he found the magnitude of this threat. Uh, he sensed an especially dark, cold, you know, area of their universe um, where void energies just poured out. So upon going there, he found that, you know, there was this desiccated, this, you know, nasty world that had fallen. Um... He saw these enormous beings festering on the world's surface. These were the old gods, of course, that the Void Lords sent out to embed themselves and corrupt a world soul. But after realizing that there was a world soul within its core, he managed to um, listen to the dream of the world soul somehow. But he realized that the dreams of this world soul were not dreams, but nightmares, you know, horrible, terrible nightmares, and that this world soul in particular had fallen into shadow. But it was at this point Sargeras found a group of Nathrezim that had helped uh, conquer this world, 
and he quickly imprisoned and interrogated these you know Nathrazim dreadlords as we know them most commonly and these broken demons now revealed what they learned about the old gods the intention of the void lords and some of the powers so Sargeras finally got some of the answers he needed to start piecing these things together and for the first time in his entire existence Sargeras felt fear you know he felt fear that there was something out there as powerful if not more powerful than him and that even his future unborn siblings were at great risk and after realizing how bad the situation was he quickly destroyed the Nathrazim he'd interrogated um, and he turned his attention to the world itself and this is where this is where it's kind of a question of did he do the right or wrong thing um, he didn't go back to the Pantheon you know in a absolute I don't want to quite say panic but you know knowing time is of the essence and what sort of things could be created he destroyed the world you know with one heave of his blade he split the world in two and the explosion destroyed the old gods the energies but of course also killed the titan inside the world in his eyes it was the right thing to do because you know having a void infused titan would be potentially cataclysmic for everything so he really you know did what he thought was right but he immediately, after he did this, he immediately returned to the rest of the Pantheon, you know, got Agrimar with him, and gathered before all the Titans to recount everything he had learned, discovered, and seen and done. But they quickly chastised him for what they call needlessly uh, killing one of their kin. Because they claimed together they could have possibly purged the world's soul of its corruption. Now, whether they could have actually done that or not, you, you know, maybe they couldn't. This is not something any of them had even encountered. Sargeras was the first to ever see, as you know, as anything of the Void Lords. So perhaps this would have all been for nothing had they tried anyway. Could have made things different. Maybe they could have saved it. Who knows? But regardless, they were pretty harsh on Sargeras's choice. But this is also where you have to figure Sargeras had seen, you know, things the Titans would never have even imagined between fighting the demons you know, seeing the void, seeing the world itself. The only other titan that kind of stood with him that saw some of what he'd seen was Agrimar. But even Agrimar wasn't sure if what Sargeras had done was the right thing. And so they argued back and forth, you know, of what to do about the void, what to do, you know, if other world souls were being corrupted by the void. Um, of course, in Sargeras's mind, you know, this is when he began to realize that life itself Funnily enough, he loves life, yet life itself was the threat because the void could corrupt it and then destroy all the life. So this is where Sargeras kind of started to lose his mind, um, more or less, of course. And this is a direct quote from the Chronicle that puts it pretty good. In Sargeras's mind, even a lifeless universe was better than one dominated by the void. Um, and this horrified the rest of the Pantheon, um, because, you know, obviously everything they had done was to help create, nurture life. And Sargeras suddenly, you know, <laughs> coming to the conclusion that life is the true issue here. And the only way to destroy the void would be to prevent life from being corrupted. And this is where eventually he ended up walking away from the Pantheon because no one else agreed with him. Even Agrimar stood against him and didn't... Um, agree with his plan to destroy you know stop life he tried hard to convince Sargeras to stay and to find another solution but Sargeras's mind had already been made up at this point and he realized that because life could be corrupted because titan souls could be corrupted life itself had to be taken out of the equation so to speak to be taken out of the universe and that maybe if all life was scoured um, from the universe corruption itself would disappear and then life would be able to take root once again without the threat of the void something I don't quite think is right but in his mind he thought was a possibility but of course the pantheon thought that this was you know crazy because it is and Sargeras left and this would be the last time the titans of the pantheon would see him as one of their own from here on out Sargeras is on his own and while he headed off to eventually create the Burning Legion, the Titans still looked for world souls. Now, they didn't find any more of their kin. You know, they 
they thought in their hearts that there were more out there. They hoped that there were more out there, and that's what kind of kept them going is the hope that they'd find more uh, world souls, you know, future titans out there. But they didn't find any. At least they didn't find any yet. And the next one that they found would be Azeroth. And speaking of Azeroth, that's where, timeline-wise, is the best place to jump next. Um, to give you an idea of what Azeroth is looking like, um, of course, that's how it kind of goes in the Chronicle 2, in order of the timeline. Because right now on Azeroth, you know, as the Titans are still looking for their future kin, Azeroth is in the middle of what's more or less a war between the elements. Um, because the elements in the Warcraft universe are alive. You know, they're living. Um, for example, during this time, you've got the four elemental lords fighting between each other. Uh, you've got El Alkir, the Wind Lord, Ragnaros, the Fire Lord, Therizin, the Stone Mother, and Neptulon, the Tide Hunter. Um, of course, you can imagine which is which based on the elements of the names. And I will note, too, um, it says in the Chronicle that. The world soul of Azeroth was so vast that it had drawn in and consumed much of the fifth element spirit, also known as Chi, that it created an imbalance, and that's what caused Azeroth's elemental spirits to descend into chaos. And so during this time, these four would just create apocalyptic battles between each other. Um, the dominion over who kind of ruled Azeroth constantly shifted between the factions. But it's funny because the victory itself wasn't really the point. I mean, they were more just driven to fight than they were to actually win, and that's what caused this kind of seemingly endless cycle of chaos. Of course, a brief description of the um, main elemental lords there. El Alkir is kind of the elusive, cunning one that would send agents to pit elementals against each other. Ragnaros, we're familiar with, is, you know, um, very strong, likes to use brute force, destructive... Neptalon the Tide Hunters, known for his wisdom. And Therizin the Stone Mother was a bit more reclusive and didn't often come out to fight until things were looking a bit desperate for her. And the Elemental Lords would love this chaos um, during this time, and it would continue on until a group of old gods would plummet down from the Great Dark and slam into Azeroth. And if you've ever seen the old gods in-game, you know what they do. They infest, they corrupt, they take over the land themselves and turn it into just a blighted, you know, landscape of their own creation. And as it spread um, through Azeroth, organic matter seeped from the old gods' blighted forms and actually created two races, uh, one known as the Faceless Ones, the Enraki, and the second, the Akir, the insectoid-looking ones. And of course, they were created to serve the old gods only. And if we've seen in-game how they operate, usually the faceless ones are kind of the, the ones in charge. And the Akir would help uh, build, you know, the citadels, temple cities, everything like that. But the greatest of the buildings created by uh, servants of the old gods would be around the old god known as Yasharaj. And this old god was kind of in the center of the continent which if you uh, haven't seen a picture before if you haven't seen what it looked like but basically it's like how we have Pangea uh, in real life you know how our continents all used to be one supercontinent uh, that did the same thing with Azeroth so in the very beginning all the continents were um, at least most all the continents were one giant supercontinent and right in the middle of the heart of it of all was Yasharaj um, in what would be the Black Empire and of course this drew the attention of the, all the elemental lords, um, who for the first time in history would actually begin to work together as they realized the old gods posed a threat to them. And they didn't have much of a choice but to work in unison. Um, this way they could try to expel these invaders from their lands. And given the strength of the elemental lords, when you put them together you get some interesting results. Uh, for example, El Alkir would work with Ragnaros, and together they'd create these monstrous cyclones of flames, and, of course, these cyclones would just, you know, destroy whatever part of the Black Empire that they'd be unleashed upon. And while it is quite some power, um, it wasn't enough to stop the Black Empire. And eventually, the old gods actually enslaved the elementals and their lords. Um, the Black Empire and the old gods were just too strong. Because no matter how many of the uh, old gods' servants, the faceless ones, and the Akir died, just more would spawn and the elementals just could not keep up. And at this point, the Black Empire crept over 
pretty much almost all of Azeroth um, without any kind of people to fight them back because so far the Titans had not found the world. But of course, that would change shortly. And while Sargeras was gone from the Pantheon, uh, Agrimar continued in his stead to destroy and fight the demons wherever they may be found. Um, and he hoped that one day Sargeras would return and see the Pantheon was right. But for now, it was just him out there fighting. And finally, he stumbled upon Azeroth. And as he approached it, he quickly realized that two things. He realized that the Void was powerful, that the old gods had taken root in the world, which disturbed him greatly. And he also realized that Azeroth had a world soul, and it was far more powerful than any they'd encountered so far. But as he realized that the old gods had taken root, he quickly went back to the Pantheon to inform them of what he found, and came to the conclusion that Sargeras had been right in terms of what the Void Lord's plans were. So the Pantheon talked about it, and it was Ienar who quickly tried to talk everyone else into Agrimar's cause, because she said, of course, that if Azeroth was so strong, she'd, it would probably be a more powerful titan than Sargeras in power too. Um, that and the fact that they can't abandon their own sibling to the Void Lords. So they all agreed to save Azeroth no matter the cost. Of course, Agrimar was the one leading, because at this point Sargeras was gone, so only Agrimar led the fight. And they figured they had to obviously go and stop the Black Empire, but they couldn't um, do it directly because, you know, the Titans are massive. I mean, huge. So due to their massive forms, if they attack the world directly, they might do more damage and even kill Azeroth. So what they did was they, of course, created the constructs to act as the Pantheon's uh, fighters against the Black Empire. And it was actually Kazgaroth of the Pantheon that first created an army of servants from the crust of Azeroth itself. And they were called the Aesir and Venir. Hopefully I pronounced that right. And the Aesir were fashioned from metal and could use the power of storms. And the Venir were made of stone and could, you know, use the earth. And were both known to be the Titanforged. Um, and a certain of these Titanforged were imbued by the Pantheon with their likeness and powers to lead the rest of their Titan-forged comrades. And these empowered beings were called the Keepers. And of course, as we see in the game, they develop their own personalities and forever kind of bear a mark um, through their abilities of the Makers. And Amon Thul himself, the Titan, gifted some of his abilities to specifically um, Odin, that'd be Keeper Odin, and High Keeper Ra. Kazgaroth would give his mastery over earth and forging to Keeper Arcadius. And Golganeth gave the Keepers Thorim and Hodir dominion over the storms and skies. And Ienar gave Keeper Freya command over Azeroth's flora and fauna. And good old Norganon gave a portion of his intellect and mastery of magic to Loken and Murmuron. And finally, it was Agrimar that gave his strength and courage to Keeper Tyr who would become the greatest warrior of the Titan Forge, who we've seen a lot of now um, in-game, at least a lot of what he left behind. And with this new army created by the Pantheon, they went to war with the Black Empire so they could free Azeroth and hopefully, and ultimately unsuccessfully, purge the old gods from the planet. And I do know there are a lot of names there. Um... But if you've played the game a bit, you'll probably recognize a lot of them. They're not too important. Um, well, some are. Some are not that important. Some you'll probably probably never see much again in the game. Um, when you're if you're playing through from fresh, you'll see, you know, these names pop up over the course of expansions. Uh, but right now, I wouldn't. I don't know if we'll see much in the upcoming expansion Shadowlands. It's hard to say because we know so little about the Shadowlands. Um, and I don't really know if the Titans will fit in much to this. It'll be quite interesting to see. But anyway, uh, the Pantheon decided to go to war with the Black Empire with all these newly created uh, warriors. And they would first start in the northernmost part of the world to fight the Black Empire. And they really had a good start. Uh, the old gods were caught completely off guard. Um, they suffered some major defeats. And eventually they realized they needed the help of their 
elemental lords that they had taken control of earlier, and they sent them into battle. And while the elementals were strong, they weren't strong enough to defeat the Titan Forged. Um, I won't go through every single thing because there's a lot of stuff here, but essentially you can kind of imagine that the steel and tough stone-skinned uh, Titan Forged warriors would do quite well against elements. Um, like, for example, Ragnaros couldn't really do much against the strong Tyr and Odin, um, and he was defeated. I mean, they were all defeated from Ragnaros, Therizin, Alokir, and Neptalon. Uh, they were all defeated by various Titan Forged, but the Keepers realized that you couldn't destroy them. They were bound to Azeroth no matter what, and if they were killed, then their corporeal forms would just be created again in time. So they found a solution, uh, kind of like when Sargeras had created the Prison for Demons. Uh, they called upon Helia, who, if you remember, was uh, the Titan Forged Sorceress, very gifted. And they created uh, four kind of domains for these elementals that they could imprison them in. And we've seen them in game, too. Uh, Ragnaros was sent to the Firelands. Alkir was sent to the Skywall. Neptalon sent to the Abyssal Ma. And lastly, Therizin was sent to Deepholm. And... Now that they were defeated, they could go back and turn their attention to the Black Legion. And they started off by smoking the Akir out from underneath the surface. They uh, kind of burrowed under there, the little Akiri insectoids. And after they were driven above ground, they were quickly destroyed by the Titan Forged. And only small, small pockets of the insects remained uh, that had tunneled deep, deep underground. But they were far too weak to mount a counterattack. And the Titan Forge did continue to fight towards Yasharaj. Uh, it was pretty brutal, and both sides suffered heavy, heavy losses. And eventually it was so um, so destructive that the Pantheon actually grew concerned that the Old God would overwhelm the Titan Forge servants. And despite the risks of you know intervening themselves, because they are so colossal and strong, they decided to take direct action. And it was actually Amon Thul himself that reached down took a hold of Yasharaj and tore the old god right out of Azeroth. And, of course, right then, Yasharaj itself was ripped apart. Um, and the immensity of this, you know, the, everything shattered mountaintops, you know, obliterated everything around. Um, because, of course, titans are enormous and the old god was powerful. But when he did this, he actually created an eternal wound in Azeroth. Um... A wound that would just leak volatile arcane energy right out. The lifeblood of the Titan itself would erupt all over the world. And the Pantheon realized that they couldn't do this again. It was far too destructive. Um, not only that, because Yerashiraj had you know, embedded itself so deep into the crust that if they did it again, who knows what would happen. So they knew their only course of action was just to imprison the old gods right where they lay uh, to try to contain them forever, which of course they would eventually fail and break through with um and that's where they left their keepers that they left their keepers to be the wardens of the prisons that would uh keep the old gods at bay and not allow them to further corrupt the world and of course after yasharaj they imprisoned nazoth um and then after nazoth they moved on to the big man they moved on to yog saron and it was quite the battle to get yog saron imprisoned uh, he unleashed his greatest of generals, the Sothraxi, uh, which were, you know, huge. We've seen them in game. They're big, monstrous, uh, larger than the other faceless ones, and they're smart, too. And they were actually so strong and hard to fight that Odin himself had to uh, step in and commanded Loken to create this, basically, this grand illusion spell that forced all the Sothraxi to see themselves and even Yogg-Saron as the enemy. So as they turned on each other um, and attacked each other, Odin swooped in to his confused foes and uh, led his troops to victory, and they succeeded in imprisoning Yogg-Saron. And now he was locked away in prison, just like the other old gods. And for the first time in Azeroth's history, a sort of almost peace settled over the world. Because now the old gods have been locked up, uh, the Elementals had also been locked up in their various prisons. Except despite their enemies being gone, they still had some things to take care of. Uh, the first of which being 
the large scar from when Amon Thule had torn Yashraj from the world's crust. Volatile arcane energy still kind of bled out from that big rift, and they had to figure out what to do with this terrible wound, so eventually they created what would be called the Well of Eternity, which we've seen a lot in, you know, game and lore before, and basically the Well of Eternity is where those trolls settled down that eventually became the Night Elves. But the next step for the Keepers was to heal Azeroth's world soul, um, and this is where the forges of will and origination come in. Uh, basically, they were machines that worked together to infuse Azeroth's spirit with more kind of uh, energy of the cosmos to strengthen it and build it back up. And of course, the Forge of Wills was created in Storm Peaks, and that's where Ulduar was built. Um, and the good thing about the Forge of Wills for the Titans and their servants is that tight, more Titan Forged could be made from the Forge itself, so they could kind of replenish their forces. And of course, the Forge of Origination, that was built down in Uldum. And during this time, when Highkeeper Ra was leading the expedition to install the Forge of Origination down south, he came across the remnants of Yashiraj's uh, corporal form, and most importantly, he found the heart of Yashiraj, which he uh, built a large kind of underground vault to contain it and try to neutralize its energy. Um, and of course, they want to study that to try to figure out what to do with the old gods and other void creatures. Um, and this is, of course, when Ra had his Mogu followers, and he was the one uh, who put them in charge of watching over this vault. And, of course, they would take care of that up until we see in-game during Mist of Pandaria. And, of course, both of these forges could be used in another purpose. Uh, if Azeroth's flora and fauna was to fall to corruption, the energy inside these machines could easily eradicate all the life on the world, allowing it to start anew. Ironically, that's kind of, uh, if you think about it, that's kind of what Sargeras wanted to do with all of life itself, so the fact that the Titans almost came to a similar solution on a smaller scale is a little funny in terms of destroying life to stop corruption. And after Highkeeper Ra uh, got the forge going, he left the Tolvir and Anubisiaths to guard uh, Oldham forever, and he marched over to Silithus, where Cthun had been um, imprisoned. And of course, they labored to expand the prison and create the mighty fortress of Ankaraj. And he ordered his remaining Titan Forge to, of course, safeguard the stronghold. So now this is when Azeroth started to really be uh, shaped by the Keepers. During this time, you know, you had the Mechanomes working under Keeper Murmuron, um, maintaining the Keepers' crazy machines. The Mogu were digging out rivers and waterways of Azeroth. Um, the, the Earthen would specialize in crafting mountains. Uh, so during this time, they're really shaping the world. And this is when Keeper Freya set out to actually populate the world with organic life, as pretty much everything at this point had been destroyed between the Elemental Wars, the War of the Black Empire. So to do this, she crafted the Emerald Dream, which I'm sure if you play Druid, you've heard and seen and witnessed plenty of times. And the Emerald Dream is more or less a mirror image of Azeroth that helps guide... Uh, the world's life down a certain path. And being in the realm really messed with any kind of mortal consciousness, as we see in games sometimes when you take, especially in Warcraft 3, when you awake the druids from the dream, they're all kind of messed up because a day in, you know, the physical normal world could feel like decades in the dream. So you could feel like you're in there for a long time and not much time has passed. Um, and after creating this, Freya wandered Azeroth, searching for areas where the Well of Eternity's energies had been concentrated. And these places were areas which would later become known as, like, Ungaro Crater, Sholazar Basin, and the Vale of Eternal Blossoms. So these were the areas where she molded life, uh, especially because they were just so well-suited for it. Which, of course, you see if you go there in-game. Um, and, of course, the greatest creatures to be created from this whole process were the Wild Gods. And they were colossal, powerful, and she cared about them as if they were her own children. And she would, like, wander around the world with them. And, you know, vibrant kind of, like, forests and other crazy areas would just be, like, blooming at their footsteps. They were so powerful with nature magic. And there's one place in particular they went to more than any other. And this, of course, is Mount Hyjal. And it was here in Mount Hyjal that Freya bound the spirits of her wild gods uh, to the Emerald Dream. And... Hyjal would kind of remain a sacred place to the wild gods. And 
As they continued to explore the world, they found other strange life forms that had emerged um, in Azeroth's past. And when they had sealed off the elemental plane, some of the stragglers had escaped. And the kind of the spirits kind of coalesced and changed, and they actually became creatures of flesh and blood. And this is how the proto-dragons came to be. So the proto-dragons are actually former elementals that had managed to either escape or didn't quite get banished away. But it wasn't just the proto-dragons. There were some other forms of wildlife that also formed from these elementals. But I'll briefly mention, too, the wild gods. Um, of course, you've heard most of them before one way or another. You've got important ones like Agamagan, the big razor boar guy you see in the Razorfin dungeon. Uh, because actually when he's killed later on in the War of the Ancients, his remains become Razorfin, so that's why his spirit's bound there, that's why you see him in the dungeon. And then, importantly, you've got Malorn, uh, the White Stag, and also Father of Cenarius, who, important role especially in Warcraft 3, in WoW somewhat. But there's a handful of other ones too, um, feel free to look it up, I'm not going to go over all of them at the moment, just because... Uh, if you're going by timeline-wise, yeah, there's not much to mention at the current moment. But, yeah, with life going so well on Azeroth, the Pantheon decides to depart. Um, and this is where the Discs of Norganon come in. This is what was created by Loken and Murmuron um, that would just kind of transcribe the history as it unfolds on Azeroth. That way, when the Pantheon, if they ever returned, they would have a record of what happened in their absence. But just before they left... Uh, the big man, Amonthul himself, commissions Algalon the Observer to serve as the world's guardian. Um, and put him in charge. That way, if corruption was to reach a level that couldn't be quelled, that could not be ignored, Algalon had the power himself to uh, use the Ford Virgination to purge life and get rid of any corruption. Of course, you see that in the raid. Um... And yeah, then the Pantheon bids farewell and disappears off into the stars until well, relatively recently in WoW. Um, so the Titans felt they'd done everything possible to heal Azeroth and hoped that one day she would awake. And that's where the story of the Pantheon themselves kind of ends for now. Um, so it's probably a good place to stop. Um, kind of sums it up. So yeah, that's episode one in a wrap. There's a lot of information there, a lot of names. Uh, it's not, you know, much better of a way to go over it than to kind of slowly explain it like this if you don't feel like buying and reading the Chronicle or going on Gamepedia or something. But yeah, thanks so much for tuning into episode one. Um, I plan on doing episode two pretty much uh, right after this now that I've got time on my hands with everything going on. And episode two will take up pretty much right where I left off. Um, and I feel like I'm going to do episode two and three on Warcraft lore, and then maybe I'll mix it up in episode 4 will be uh, old school RuneScape lore or something. So keep an eye, I will have them labeled, so this won't just be episode 1, it'll be like episode 1, like W1 or something, you know, to show that it's the first WoW one, and then have some witty title afterwards. Um, but yeah, hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you tune in next time. And of course, if you have any corrections or anything like that, feel free to let me know, and I can get to it whenever I get your feedback and record the next one. Hope you have a great rest of your day.